is The Trip That Changed Me, a podcast about trips that transform. I'm Esme Benjamin, editor of Full-Time Travel, and every other Thursday, I'll be sitting down with entrepreneurs, writers, entertainers, and everyday adventurers to discuss a journey that shifted their mindset, ignited a new calling, expanded their heart, or ushered in a new chapter. My guest today is award-winning journalist and author, Elizabeth Becker. Elizabeth started out as a war correspondent at the Washington Post before going on to work for Public Radio and the New York Times. She is also the author of three books, including Overbooked, The Exploding Business of Travel and Tourism, which was an Amazon book of the year, and You Don't Belong Here, How Three Women Rewrote the Story of War, which won the 2022 Goldsmith Award from Harvard. But long before the achievements and accolades, Elizabeth was a graduate with a dream of visiting India a country she'd never been to but knew a lot about thanks to her degree in South Asian studies. In this episode, Elizabeth shares the story of the eventful year she spent living and learning in India and how that first real travel experience would go on to shape her career and views about tourism. Buckle up, because Elizabeth has got some wild anecdotes to share. I'm really excited to have you on. Welcome. Thank you. And it's, I lo- I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So I do know that you're from Seattle originally, and you graduated with a BA in South Asian Studies from the University of Washington. Why that subject? From Seattle, we look to Asia more than, say, the East Coast does. And I had a high school teacher who introduced me to the poetry of Rabindranath Tagore, who maybe not younger people know his work, but he was the first Asian to win the Nobel Prize in Literature. I loved the poetry, but I thought that was sort of an embarrassing thing to love. So I didn't pursue it until I realized that everything else that I was studying in college was sort of boring compared to Asia. And I just said, okay, it's not practical, but I'm going to study India. And that's South Asia, the subcontinent, India and Pakistan. And that's what I did my degree in. Did you have any idea about what career path might be open to you after you graduated? I didn't really think about career, but I imagined that I would end up teaching. Yeah, that makes sense. And you'd never, at this point, you'd never been overseas before. But after you graduated, you decided you wanted to visit India, this place that you'd learned so much about. Was this just a vacation or something longer and more substantial than that? It it was a year and um, it was much more substantial. It was, the idea was, okay. I've got my Bachelor of Arts. I want to go on to graduate school. But before I make that big of a commitment, I really wanted to see India. And I went with a partner. And it was tough, but extremely rewarding. It was a whole year. Did you, did you have a specific plan or an itinerary for the year? Or were you just planning on playing it by ear? Not a particular plan. When I, when I meet people today that have their whole lives planned out, I can't believe it. No, this in those days, you could go off for a year and say, okay, I'll see what, what's going to happen. We saved our money and had just enough to be the equivalent of backpackers, essentially travel from the Himalayas down to the very tip of India. And then on the way back, um, went home overland through the Middle East into Europe. So along the way, I took Hindi lessons. We were dorm parents in a boarding school in the Himalayas traveled everywhere. Um, I attended a a women's conference in uh, southern India outside of Madras, um, which is no longer called Madras. 
and I got every kind of dysentery you could get, but um, <laughs> fully, fully, fully understood that this was a world unto itself. And that's that was shocking and in a great way. That and I also liked being around uh, to be a minority. It was so amazingly wonderful not to be with your own kind. It was wonderful to be with people of color, with different languages, with whole different literary and musical um, traditions, eating food I'd never eaten before. Remember, this is um, this is 1970, 71, when, yes, England was certainly had their share of Indian restaurants, but the United States did not. So it was it was beyond new. And um, I really grew up that year. Obviously, you've been immersed in South Asian studies for several years at college. Uh-huh. Do you feel like that experience gave you a lot of expectations about what India would be like? Not expectations. No, it's um, it gave me the appetite. I knew you know, reading a book is not the same as being someplace. And every time I would met, meet in India in the course of India, someone from India in the course of my work in Seattle at the university, I realized with a jolt all of the dimensions I was missing. The initial shock was the poverty. I'd never seen poverty like I saw in India. And for an American from the West Coast, um, from a mo- very modest background, I I couldn't leave my um, room in the YMCA the first week because I was terrified by all the poverty. And it was irrational in the sense that the poverty wasn't going to do anything to me, but it just meant that... Um, I saw the underbelly of, of, of human society, which I'd never truly seen before. Yeah, I mean, a, a big part of it is yeah, being exposed to something and coming face to face with your discomfort in that, right? Because yeah, if you've never been so. exposed to it, it's, it's quite a culture shock. I mean, I went to India when I was 18 with my family and some of it, we, we were just in Goa and it was very beachy and pretty chilled, but we also did take trains to some of the cities and yeah, I, I relate to what you're saying. It can be quite shocking, but I think it's also, you know, what makes an experience to India so enriching is being exposed to these different things and having your mind expanded in that way. Is that right. how you experienced it as well? Well, yes. And, and I had the advantage of I lived in places. So um, mm. three months in the, um, in the Himalayas, in Missouri, in the foothills. Then later, um, outside of Agra in Model Town, when I was studying for um, over three months, and staying with the family, getting to know the family, learning not just language, but bicycling to the Taj Mahal at night when no one was there, and listening to the guard do the chant of a, a guzzle, then going to the deserted city of Fatipur Sikri, and for the first time meeting transgender people men who were wearing um, saris. And I can tell you that was very unusual for someone in the night in 1970 to um, being a very important part of the wedding of one of the of the daughter of the family we lived with in, in Agra. So for two weeks being immersed in the the food, the, the traditions, the, the startling traditions. And then the final night when day when the groom comes on his horse and for the first time the bride and groom see each other because they had never met you can read about it in a hundred books but living it is something else absolutely oh my god going to an indian wedding is is such an experience i would love to have it looks incredible yeah and it's it's days and days and days long yeah days and hundreds <laughs> and of people 
<laughs> yes. And you're, the women are secluded to one part and they had, I don't know how much of this has survived, but uh, amazing traditions like the, the poor um, bride before she's married, she has to sit in a, a courtyard and have the relatives of her soon to be husband scream atrocious, awful things at her. You whore, you slut, et cetera, et cetera. This is in, in Hindi. Um, just to show that she's not none of those and that she cannot be perturbed by it. Very old-fashioned stuff. Oh, my Very goodness. <laughs> and I know your partner at the time who went with you on the trip was actually raised in, in India. So had yes. they shared a lot of their own experiences and memories of the country growing up? Um, he, yes. I mean, it was vital. He, um, he was fluent in Marathi and um, Hindi. And so he knew he was, his parents were missionaries. So he knew um, which hill stations were um, the best to stay in. He knew all he had is like going back home for him. And every time we went someplace, of course, the story would come out. Uh, the kind of food you eat here, the kind of food you don't eat there, where the Muslim quarter is, where the um, the Sikhs lived, everything. It was um, it was a, it was a you know perfect. He was a perfect guide. It was wonderful, and and things like. Going riding your bicycle past this strange house with a lot of women, and being told that's the widow's house—a concept I'd never heard of—that when um, the husband dies, the, the his widow goes to a house so that his children then can then take over. That's not always the tradition, but it's one of the traditions. And so it was like um, it was—it wasn't a happy sight. The widow's house, but all all that it just piles up and piles up. You go from the north with the um, the more striking Aryan features all the way to the south with the darker curly haired kind of features and everything in between, so that you see the multiplicity of the color types, the people types. And uh, for someone from Seattle, that was wonderful eye opening about. Um, the artificiality of race and everything else. It was a very important lesson for me. Mm. And having this, this man, this partner of yours as your guide, that must have been invaluable because I'm sure back then tourism in India was not really a thing, or was it? It was just the beginning of the hippie trail. That's right. what it was called. But um, no, India was not um, a tourism spot per se. Um, you were just as likely to meet... Um, tourists from Eastern Europe and Soviet Union than from the United States. But I think thanks in part to Alan Watts and the Buddhists, the the influence of, of Buddhist interpretations, the Beatles went to uh, went to the Himalayas to and learned the sitar from Ravi Shankar. Uh, India was becoming cool. So you had people on the hippie trail um, trying to uh, understand this what was then considered an exotic culture. So that was much more common, but nothing like, it's, it's night and day. There was nothing like today, nothing. My parents spent a lot of time in India in the 80s before I was born. Mm -hmm. They would show me, they had like all these photos that were on slides. So they would do like these sl slideshow, like projected evenings and we'd watch, or we'd look at all their photos and it was incredible. I remember them saying that you know, you couldn't even find like a bottled water back then, let alone like a Coca-Cola like you'd be used to seeing anywhere in the world right now. So <laughs> it was like a very different experience, even if you you know, ask someone now who backpacks around a lot and you're doing more budget travel. It's still a very different experience um, back then. 
Well, they, they didn't have much bottled water, period, back then when I was yeah. going. But we could always find um, Coca-Cola. The question is, who bottled it? <laughs> <laughs> it was you're much better off um, drinking um, overboiled chai than wow. than Coca-Cola. You'd always try to find the the nice graduate student in Delhi who um, had a very good apartment and um, had very good safety measures in the kitchen where you could eat whatever you wanted. That was a big treat. You very very hard. You become. I automatically became completely vegetarian. Just for, if not other, for health reasons. It's that kind of a trip. Yeah. And you said you got very sick. How did you handle that? <laughs> Great matter. I mean, if you've been to India, they have an amazing health system underneath it all. They, not everybody has access to it, but um, great doctors, great medicine took care of you very well. It just you lose a lot of weight very quickly. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> But if nobody, I mean, to this day, the first side of the Himalayas, that's unbelievable. And living in the Himalaya, the foothills for three months, you that's something that's um, irreplaceable. Longer monkeys swinging from tree to tree. As I said, living outside of Agra with um, the Taj and Fatipur Sikri and the other spots available whenever you felt like it on your bicycle. That doesn't happen anymore either. So um, indelible. And then discovering the textiles. Back then, all the women wore saris or um, kurta pajama. Um, now, of course, if people are in blue jeans, et cetera. But then it was still traditional. And to see in a whole country where women wearing these beautiful saris, that was, that was something else too. I just, some days I would just sit and watch. It was amazing. And all the bangles. And it was gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. I love that. In the pre-interview questionnaire, you said that your partner didn't want, the original plan was for you to go solo, but he was like, no, 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 (laughs) you should not do that. (laughs) Well, he was right too. He was right too, because in those days in particular, a Western woman, which is how we were described, um, with fair hair and, and, and gray eyes, I would have had way more attention than I wanted. And I would have also to understand the the mores, the bureaucracy, what was acceptable, what wasn't acceptable, I would have made so many mistakes. I, I don't know if I could have handled it. Mm. And, and, and that's a good thing to know. Sometimes you should know that you can't go um, solo on some trips. And there are different solutions, but um, that's just, I think it's inevitable. The world is a very different place and different, and you have to be prepared for that. I totally agree. I I wouldn't ever recommend anyone go to Morocco solo as a female. <laughs> I went with a bunch of friends, including guys, but it was, there were some scary moments. I was like, you know what? There, you know, there's such a trend at the moment for female solo travel. And I love to see that, but I think, you know, you have to be smart about where you go and, and there's a lot to consider. Yes, absolutely. I've always felt that, you know, when it comes to vacation destinations, there are these places where we have a lovely, easy experience And then there are these places that kind of push us outside of our comfort zones and expand us in some way. And for me, India falls into the second of those categories. Mm -hmm. Do you think it was, you know, is India an expander for you as well? And if so, how? Well, yeah, everything I just said, (laughs) I was I was a blank state. I mean, yes, I'd studied it, but this is my first trip overseas. And in some ways, that's it's a little more dramatic than maybe it should have been. 
I could have chosen an easier country, like maybe go to France, but um, it was beyond expanding. I, it was walking into a different universe, period. I don't know if you can do that anymore. I don't know if people are so uh, lead lives that are um, so rooted in one place that going to another place would mean a different universe, but it did for me. Yeah, I guess because of globalization, there's a bit more of a homogenization of culture in some ways. Yes. But I'm sure in those days, I mean, you said India was an entire world. And I yes. I love that. That's, yeah, it pretty much sums it up. It just seems like such a formative experience for you. Even just you're learning the language and there's a special word for the way the sunlight hits the dust kicked up by the cattle when they are driven back to their pastures at twilight. There's one word for that. The light in it's, India is amazing as well. Yes, yes. It's special. And, I can picture that perfectly in my mind's eye. <laughs> so, so every you, you learn the language and through the language you can mm. get closer to the, um, to the country. And of course, you can speak to the people in their Although English is very much um, a, a second language throughout the subcontinent, you, people are different when they speak their native languages. And you learned Hindi, right? Yeah, but don't test me now. <laughs> I, I could even write, my gosh, what the, the talents you lose. Anyway, but it was lovely. I don't regret any bit of it, not one bit of it. Um, it. It set a standard for me. And I think that's why eventually many, many, many years later, I wrote that book on tourism. Oh, interesting. Well, let's touch on that because you you become somewhat of an expert on the idea of over-tourism before it was... You know, everyone knew the term. What, what were your experiences that led up to you having those kind of thoughts and, and taking note of this huge wave of tourism and how it was impacting certain places? Well, up until globalization, I would say, most of my travel had been either as a journalist or with my family to a particular place to see other families sort of thing. I, I wasn't a tourist who would go off and just say, I want to discover X, Y, or Z. It was more purpose-driven, I guess you'd say. Never felt the impingement. But then globalization happens, and I was given the beat at the New York Times of international economics, globalization. And I, you know, everybody thought globalization meant trade. It meant um, opening new markets. China was open, former Soviet Union was open. All this was seen in businessy kind of terms. And I said to my um, one of my editors, you know what? I think one of the things that's really changing with globalization is tourism. And I was told, no, that's not an industry. We have a travel section where you can write about places to visit, but we don't write about tourism as an industry, which I thought was, hmm, that's... I, I want to write about tourism as an industry. So when I left daily journalism, I was awarded a wonderful fellowship at Harvard Shorenstein and said, I want to do tourism and globalization and the way we write about it. And that was, and that was very much the result of what I saw looking at economic globalizations. I went to France and I talked to them about how globalization was affecting them. And we were talking about global food supply. Boring, right? Mm -hmm. And um, 
I was I was talking to the deputy um, minister of agriculture, and so I, he showed me the map of this is where we have they have food in in France and so on and so on and trade routes, et cetera, et cetera. And then I said, so what's that? What do you have all those culture symbols on there? He said, well, that's for tourism. I said, tourism. He says, oh yeah, tourism is a huge economic engine in France, and it's going to be more so with globalization. And so that's started was my peak because I'd lived in France for four years. And I went back to India and I saw what had happened in my in Missouri, the old Himalayan Hill Station, and was appalled. And then I started going around other places. So when I started writing the book, uh, there was, as you said, there was nothing about over tourism per se, nothing. It was all um, how to open markets even more. Everybody was riding that wave of, wow, we're making so much money. Um, and uh, we can, and countries, what were called developing countries back then, the countries were, were very uh, excited that tourism would be a good way for, to, to earn money without having to build factories, just invite people over. The downside was not appreciated. So I wrote my book, going around the world and because I had the, I was of the age and had the experience I knew the before I knew what was there before I knew that um, there was a lot of value in what was there before and um, I saw that some that too many tourists was was wrong on a whole bunch of levels I did research and saw the effect on the on the environment on the landscape it was uh, it was pretty overwhelming. I I also looked for the countries that were doing it right, so that you could read my book and not be completely depressed. I don't want to depress people. And <laughs> then I had to then I had to come up with a um, title. And um, a friend in PR she she talked me through it, and she said, "Oh, you're talking about the world is overbooked." And so that's where it came from. And then later, over tourism took over. But um, so that's where it came from. And um, it's it's a it's like any business. Uh, travel tourism, of course, it's it's wonderful. We all love to do it, but uh, it's um, it has to be regulated. And people don't like the idea of regulation of tourism. They want to say, "I want to go wherever I want, whenever I want to," which um, that's not that's not in the cards for anybody, and um, especially not when you have to have a visa to go to certain countries and. Um, and you have to respect the place you're visiting. And that's the thing that appalled me, the lack of respect for the places people are visiting. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious to know what you think of a place like Bhutan, where they famously only let a certain amount of visitors in every year. And it seems that they've done a really good job of, of preserving not only their, their culture, but also you know, their natural environment as well. I mentioned them right at the beginning of the book of, of getting it right. Yeah. Because of course, you don't, you don't let the whole world in. You can't. As one uh, one uh, official in, in Europe said, you know, some people, you you open up your city and it's like having a dinner party for 12 people and 12,000 show up. No, that's <laughs> not right. So um, Bhutan's right. I mean, people, they're lucky to get to go to Bhutan. They have X number of visas, some at the high end, some at the lower end, you know, the backpack to the five-star type. Um, the money get, was directed into specific development goals like literacy and certainly uh, retaining the um, 
the ability to protect the environment, protect uh, the culture, and so on and so forth. I mean, sometimes I think they let too many people in. That was the only complaint I would have. And this is the real world, so you know they 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 take their share of criticism, but they're right. Countries have a less obvious way to control to it's not just visas it's how many hotels are are available in a certain spot how easy is is it to reach a place how many airplanes are allowed to land there uh, whether or not ships are allowed to dock there there's all kinds of ways to control it i think during the pandemic a lot of places realized that they want to they want to find more ways to control it. yeah that was such an interesting thing to witness during the pandemic to see the changes that happen to a place when it's not besieged by millions of tourists, um, particularly, you know, famously Venice was very yes. different. But yeah, I hope that people are more open to that after the pandemic and that tourists also see the value in not just being able to go anywhere whenever they like. But ultimately, it obviously comes down to government agencies to actually, you know, figure out ways to control this tourism industry. You have to get the rose colored glasses off your face because. Everybody so loves travel and tourism, they can't think of it the way, the hard-nosed way they should. This is an industry. Airplane, airlines want to make money. Hotels want to make money. Cruise lines want to make, all the transportation systems want to make money. All the lodging want to make money. Uh, you know, the, all the great designer lines want their shops in every big city around the world. It goes on and on. and. Um, they have to be regulated and they're very rich and they can lobby governments. And if you don't lobby a government, the industry is going to have, have the first and last words. And that's what's hard for people to realize that they're not just visitors or tourists, they're also citizens. And they need to tell their governments when they think things are out of hand. And I don't think tourists alone can, can, can become the answer. Like for instance, um, Venice, you brought up Venice. So Venice had spent several decades trying to get all the big cruise ships prohibited from docking on that fragile um, island system. And they would get local approval and then it would be blocked regionally. Then it would be blocked nationally. And finally, during the pandemic, the prime minister himself, Mr. Draghi, said enough is enough. You know, they could see how nice Venice is without those cruise ships. And it's been banned. And so cruise ships can no longer visit and they have to dock on the mainland. And believe it or not, when cruise passengers are docked on the mainland and say and told that they have to take the bus into Venice, you'd be surprised at the number who say, okay, that's too much trouble. I'll just stay on the cruise ship. <laughs> it's just, wow. I'm surprised. Yes. Yes. Well, it's, it's, it's such a passive form of tourism. Yeah. that I think it inculcates that kind of attitude. But So Venice got rid of the, of the cruise ships permanently. They've also installed a um, day-tripper tax that goes into effect, I think, at the end of this year. Uh, the, um, all kinds of cities around the world have put restrictions on Airbnb, which is another way that um, travel and tourism is, is part of a problem of a city rather than a solution. Airbnb avoided all regulation by saying that you're simply renting out a room and therefore it's okay. 
Well, it, that's not what happened. In fact, hedge funds and a lot of uh, big money went around the world and bought apartments, rented them out, avoiding the regulations as a hotel, avoiding regulations as a bread and breakfast, and also critically avoiding regulations of not being having commercial enterprise in a residential area. So during the pandemic, Barcelona cracked down again with a new um, restriction. Honolulu has another restriction only outside of very small resort areas. And they're very particular about this. No um, short-term rental under 90 days. It's on and on and on of trying to get Airbnb from turning a lively city into um, a, a transient city. And I, I, Barcelona, I think, was one of the worst that I saw where um, they, they, they're running out of rental houses. They're running out of homes for the locals. And instead, um, outside money owns a lot of stuff, buying it up because they went around the rules of the city. And that, that's what's changing. If your idea of the perfect Vegas night out is the classic combo of dinner and a show, Aria Resort and Casino makes the experience completely seamless. Start your evening at Carbone, a classic Italian-American restaurant which has these theatrical tableside preparations of certain dishes. For example, they will actually flambe your dessert right there in front of you. And after you've eaten, continue your night with a show at nearby Dolby Live or the T-Mobile Arena, both of which are just a 10-minute walk from the resort. To find out more, visit aria.com. That's aria.com to start planning your Las Vegas winter break at Aria. I'm, I am glad that some governments are stepping up and, and implementing these rules because, yeah, it is out of hand. And I think it also does impact your experience as a tourist. You know, sometimes you'll see, especially now with Instagram and social media, you'll see a place and you'll think, okay, that looks amazing. I'm going to go there. And then you arrive and realize that just out of shot, it's like piles of trash, you know, <laughs> loads of people. And it's like, okay, it seems like there's nowhere in the world that is like a secret anymore, undiscovered. It's impossible to get off the beaten path, which right. something like what you experience in India is, is nearly impossible to experience in today's age, you know? One way to do that is to spend more time there when you when you're in and out in a you know i think uh, uh you know three or four days is in and out i think a minimum uh should be two weeks any place i'm at the age where i can lock out two months if i want to to stay and, and work someplace and um far away from my home it makes all the difference in the world. You you instinctively know where to go and, and what to avoid in terms of the crowds. You can have that experience. You can live much more like a local. And that's the goal is to live like a local and to respect the locals. And you, you get to know people and they'll tell you what to do. So that's, that's the closest you're going to get, I think. I was in Norway for um, a, 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 some research on tourism. Far, far, you know, within the Arctic Circle. Um, this lovely beach on an island. And it was named one of the world's top five beaches. And now it is a complete wreck because Norway is a generous country for hundreds of years. They had a rule saying that anyone can walk in the in um, state parks or national parks, whatever they were called back then, and they still are called, 
you can walk anywhere. It's, it's fine. No charge, nothing. So people were crowding the beaches and the locals never went to the beaches anymore. And they were trying to figure it. They were petitioning the government in Oslo. We can't, as wonderful as this, you know, what 500-year-old decree was, it, can't, it doesn't work in today's world. That's how bad it gets. Mm, I am glad that slow travel seems to be taking off now. More and more people are talking about it. And I think with the introduction of more you know, remote work policies, people will be able to hopefully take the time to go and live somewhere for a while. And as you say, live like a local and learn a bit more about the culture and hopefully respect, <laughs> respect <Yes>. it. <laughs> but I really want to take you back to um, the job you did right after leaving India. Um, mm-hmm. You decided you wanted to become a war correspondent. Yes. Was that a decision that came out of the trip or did you make that independently? Oh, independently. I was um, beginning my second year of graduate studies and um, I had this horrible experience where my um, thesis advisor decided that I should have an affair with him. And I said, no. Oh. <laughs> and, he, and he said, um, well, and then lo and behold, my, he rejected my thesis, but he said it had nothing to do with my uh, decision not to have an affair with him and et cetera. So that, this is back now we're in 1972 the end of 72, where, you know, there, this was an impossible situation. So I took my fellowship money and bought a one-way ticket to Cambodia. Now, why did I do that? Well, I had a friend I met in, in India, who a woman who um, was on her way to do graduate studies in Hong Kong and instead decided to try to be a freelance reporter in, in Saigon. And she ended up in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, and kept writing these letters to me, come, come, come. And, you know, the last thing I wanted to do, I thought, was go to war. I was against the war and a member of an anti-war society, a committee of concerned Asian scholars, and very serious about it. But then I thought, well, people, whether for or against the war, they could be a journalist. And, and my friend wanted me to go there. So I knew I had some, somebody to, again, someone to make sure that I did it right. Always look for that partner. And um, so I went there and um, lo and behold, uh, it was just by accident. I was at the right place at the right time because uh, for a variety of reasons, the war moved to Cambodia and the United States began carpet bombing. And there were very few journalists who lived there. And within a few months, I was the resident stringer for the Washington Post, Newsweek magazine and NBC radio. It was a Amazing. horrible time for Kim. Yeah, it was a horrible time for Cambodia. But um, again, that, that's one of those years where I, it was astonishing to live through that for two years. Had you done any journalism before that or was all of your experience and scholarship enough to get you the job? Oh, I had done none. none. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and this was a time period where women were not considered qualified at home in the United States. Uh, even to be regular political reporters, they were stuck in, in women's pages and women were not foreign correspondents. The few who were, were the exception and they were not even allowed to cover sports. So um, uh, the women, the few women that, who, who ended up uh, covering the Vietnam War as I did, we were almost to a person um, without real experience. And those who had studied journalism still had been forced to work at the women's pages back in the United States. So it's, I wasn't alone in that. And so you learn by doing. And the, the one thing that um, all that schooling did was um, it allowed, it taught me how to write. 
and taught me how to see things and do research. And um, sure, my first, you know, my articles were um, embarrassingly bad at first, but you learn quickly. And um, there's there's nothing like um, living in the war with with the people that you admire. I love the culture, and um, but it was also um, gripping, exciting, the most important story in the world, and it was heartbreaking. And finally, I couldn't bear it any longer. How did you protect yourself psychologically from all of the atrocities that you were reporting on? Oh, you're not conscious of any of that at all. I mean, people ask how how you protect yourself against that, about all that sort of stuff. I think uh, you um, you create your own um, tribe, so to speak. You hang out with the journalists who you trust. Um, my very few Americans lived in Cambodia. Um, I usually went out when I went out on the in the field with uh, reporters. There were Japanese and 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 Brits and French. There's some Americans and some you visitors who came and you just taught yourself to find your friends and not. And I think as a woman, I was not um, reluctant to you know just like if I was in a, one of those sad moods. I could just go to a diplomat's house and Ina's wife would say, I'd say, you know, I just need to be with you guys. And they would let me in. So that was one of the advantages, I think, um, that uh, women tend to be more willing to seek out um, companionship than, than men are, friendship. And, um, and then just becoming engrossed in the story. And there's no way, I think, to quotes, protect yourself from, from the savagery that you witness and write about. Um, but um, in fact, it's this thing that was astonishing, and I'm just as guilty of it as anybody else. It's you get so engrossed, it's hard to take a vacation. Mm. So you finally have to have a talk to yourself and say, time is up. And I wrote to my family, I either go out in a um, straight jacket or a body bag but i i think i've reached the point so i came home um months before the end i just knew i couldn't stay for the end it would be too much and when you returned to the states did you have a specific plan for for your work because i'm guessing you can't you know if you leave if you leave cambodia then you can't be there like foreign correspondent anymore for the post no um, no i be uh, they hired me as um i became a staff reporter in washington for the washington post and that's, you know, that's in terms of career plan, that's what I was hoping to do. And that, that's what I did. So they hired me. And so I became a full, full-time Washington Post reporter. Later, I um, went back to Cambodia when Pol Pot was in power and interviewed him and eventually wrote a book about the whole um, uh, war and the Khmer Rouge Revolution. Because those stories stick to you. They really do. Yeah. I can imagine. Wow, you interviewed him? Yes. What was that like? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it was the first and the last interview of him by um, journalists while he was still in power. I was with another journalist from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. We were the only journalists to ever receive uh, visas to Cambodia while he was in power. They had had um, communist journalists and the ones from Yuga then Yugoslavia were good, but the others were not. And, but we were the first ones there, and it was, it was surreal, of course. 
they had emptied the cities. There are very few people in the cities and everything I knew from when I lived there was gone. Schools were closed, churches, monasteries, all the, the Buddhist temples, uh, markets were closed. Everything was closed. People were out in the equivalent of labor camps in the, in the countryside. Um, it was scary. Um, and I was the one of, there were three of us. Another one was a professor and I was the only one who lived there. And I was probably more frightened than they were because I was so, um, so obvious how awful it was. And we were, we interviewed Pol Pot on the last day with all the uh, jitters you would have very um, beautiful salon. That was the office of the governor general when Cambodia was under the French, very majestic setting. And he was wearing a very lovely tailored Mao kind of suit and, and charismatic. And so Remember, at this stage, people did not understand at all the depth of the um, the um, atrocities and torture and, and insane um, deaths by um, starvation and hard labor. That was, it was a completely closed off country. So we had bits and pieces of it. We didn't know the whole extent by any shot. And so we had given him questions in advance. He said that um, his... Um, Assistants would give me the answers written later. And then he simply um, lectured us for two hours on um, the upcoming war with Vietnam. And we were so happy that it was over and that we could go home the next day. But then that night we were attacked by um, some Cambodian soldiers and they killed the professor. Oh my God, what? Yeah. Where were you attacked? Well, how did it go in the, down? In the, the government guest house. And um, they broke into the house, the, killed the guards, threatened me, but didn't um, shoot me, shoot at me. They, they then went upstairs and shot at the other journalist, but at his feet, and then went in and killed the professor and left. Don't ask me why they did it, because nobody understands exactly why the Khmer Rouge did anything. But the next day we did leave, and we took the body of the professor back with us and um, to Beijing. Do you think that they spared your life because you were a woman? Not necessarily. I think they spared my life and the life of the other journalists because they wanted it to get out that it's too dangerous to visit Cambodia. Mm. I, you know, I just wrote a book about um, the three women who covered the Vietnam War and, and broke through the glass ceiling and changed how war reporting is um, changed because of them. It's called You Don't Belong Here. And all those questions you probably have about women covering the war in Vietnam, I hope I answer them. So I, I recommend it highly to you. Yeah, let's talk a bit more about the book. What was it about the stories of those women that spoke to you? The, well, first of all, that they accomplished so much. As I said, all three had to pay their own way. No woman was being sent there as a war correspondent. They had to pay their own way. This side of no journalism experience whatsoever. Yet the French woman named Catherine Roy uh, took such extraordinary photographs that she became the first woman to win the prestigious George Polk Award for Photography and the even more coveted Robert Kappa Gold Medal Award. And I think she, she, like the other women, were so outsiders, they didn't know they were breaking rules, which is an advantage in this. So... They all concentrated deeply on the country, 
on what was going on for the Vietnamese as well as the Americans and, and got unusual pictures. She did. The next one was Frances Fitzgerald, an American who wrote long-form magazine articles. Her, she, she was from a very privileged background, and she was not easily intimidated. Although, um, So she said, uh, you know, all the others are, are concentrating on the battlefield because the Americans were fighting, and she wanted to know what that war meant to Vietnam and, and the Vietnamese as well as the Americans out in the field, wrote pathbreaking books, uh, articles on you know, staying in a village and, and um, seeing how they have to put up with both sides. Stuff that's done by just naturally now, but she was the one who did it. And she eventually wrote a book called Fire in the Lake that won more awards about the Vietnam War, winning the Pulitzer, the National Book Award, and the um, Bancroft History Prize. More prizes than any book before or since. And um, then Kate Webb, an Australian who's combat, and she really took advantage of the U.S. not imposing their old rules on correspondence, because until Vietnam, women were not allowed to cover the battlefield. All the wonderful journalists you may know of, like Martha Gellhorn, she, she did great work, but she never covered, she was not allowed on the battlefield, like with the Allies during World War II. So um, Kate didn't even know she was breaking the rules, but she and other women um, just went out and covered the battlefield and forever broke that glass ceiling so that um, women from then on were allowed to cover battlefield. And her work was so um, outstanding. She was the first woman to be the bureau chief in a war zone and um, one of the top prizes in Asia for corresponding journalism is um, the Cape Webb Prize. And they just stood out and their story had not been told in, in, you know, in the context and what it meant to journalism. So since I followed after them and, and knew Kate quite well and, um, and no, no um, Francis Fitzgerald, I thought, I have to write this book before the stories are forgotten. I mean, you've just lived, you've lived such a fascinating life, Elizabeth. <laughs> and what an amazing career. I feel like I could just talk to you for hours and hours, but I know we're running out of time a little bit. I'd love to hear a bit about what you're working on right now. Oh, I'd never talk about what I'm working on. Oh. <laughs> no, but, no, but I just, um, since this is about travel, I just, I just like to say that some days I wake up thinking the travel world is going to improve. And some days I wake up thinking, no, it never will. So um, I hope everybody who listens to your podcasts um, and, and is concerned about travel and tourism um, does, you know, get it's to know um, what's important in their local communities and how travel and tourism could improve things and how it's um, ruining things and, and, and do, do their homework when they go places so that they are good citizens as well as um, uh, appreciative visitors. It's just, I was just in um, Canada in Victoria, British Columbia at a wonderful impact conference of, of Canadians who are interested in, in really protecting what is gorgeous about Canada. And it's really that now that's another place where you can go and feel you're in a different world. Um, it's the best indigenous tourism I have seen. And um, during the pandemic, instead of twiddling their thumbs and worrying that they're going to go out of business, which of course everybody did, they did things to, to improve the environment. My favorite was a bunch of 
uh, adventure ship owners, small ships that if you're um, you know rugged, ready, can climb cliffs, you would take these ships in um, and go to the northern end of the island, which is so vast and wild. You think dinosaurs might come out? Mm-hmm. And so, so there they were. They had nothing to do, and they band together, even though they were in in normal times, they're real competitors. And they wrote a proposal, got a grant, and cleaned up big, huge marine. Um, flotsam and jetsam from all of those crevices and things that's so hard to get to. And, um, you know, like 25,000 tons of, of garbage and they're continuing to do it all along the island. That's, it was, there, it was story after story about innovative things. One, one hotel spent the pandemic finishing up becoming a carbon neutral hotel. Another, I was on a whaling ship that was a, a you know, whale visitor ship well sightseeing ship that was um, a boat that's carbon neutral that uh, they, they just one they kept they kept feeding each other they kept saying we can do more we can do more we can do more and the indigenous travel um, you know the the indigenous people by nature by by their tradition are environmentalists before we even knew the word and they are expanding to um, to protect the wilderness that is Canada, my gosh. It's, it's stunning. I, I sound like an ad for Canada, but <laughs> they are working, they're working to ensure that, you know, that one indigenous tourist groups um, are able to, to make profit from all the work they do. And they, you know, which is a big deal. And two, that, that people listen to them because if anybody can help protect that gorgeous environment, it's them. And so it's just mm, British Columbia go there. I love that. That's so encouraging to hear as well that people are really doing stuff like that to improve the state of tourism. Yeah. And wherever you are, you can find them if you look. Mm. It's all about being a conscious traveler, conscious and responsible. (laughs) Elizabeth, before you go, I would love to do a quick fire round of questions with you. All right. So what's the one thing every person should experience in their lifetime? The first thing that comes to mind is um, going down a snow slope, skiing, however you want to go down there, but you have to, you have to experience a mountain. What's the one thing you never, ever travel without? Now it's my computer before it was my um, notebooks. Top tip for somebody visiting India for the first time. Talk to your doctor beforehand and make sure you um, have everything you need for possible illness. That's <laughs> very practical. I like it. <laughs> well, it can ruin your whole vacation is the whole point. It really can. If you could teleport anywhere for the day, where would you go and what would you do? It depends on the weather, of course. But um, part of me wants to be in um, Bordeaux in the fall. Oh, that sounds lovely. any advice for travelers who want a true cultural experience when they're abroad rather than the usual touristy stuff avoid um all the obvious checklists and um go to well see here i live in washington i'm going to say go to an embassy and ask (laughs) ask the embassy what is their favorite nobody knows about place but that's a luxury i have here in washington we have such a wonderful and vibrant foreign community I'll tell you what I do, and I don't know if people can do it. So you either talk to a person who lives there or um, 
I have friends who, who travel a lot, and so I'll ask them. And then uh, I'll read, not, I do not read tourist stuff much at all. I will, um, I'll try to read a, a history book or a novel. And as I, particularly if I read um, history, something will jump out at me. And like, for instance, uh, when you read the history of Spain, you'll see that Toledo, it might be a place you want to go to, or, you, you know, different, you'll see different places that were important in history and maybe aren't so famous now. So history books, great novels, um, I would go there. And, and then I don't know what your interests are, but like music, find a place that has a great opera house or, you know, whatever kind of music you like. Um, or maybe if you love art, find find some out of the way museums. Uh, but uh, follow your own interests and and um, your 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 friendly groups, your groups of friends, because they're they know you and they'll know. Hopefully, they will have traveled a bit too. Such good Long advice. Love that. Lots of. I mean, like once I was asked about it, and I and I asked, I turned the question around. So, um, so what do you do? And this person was. Um, was a was the a firefighter so i bet at some point in your life you've met a firefighter from that country try to connect with the firefighters and that's what he did and that's what you do you go you you've got more you've got more resources than you know Mm, i always like to whoever picks me up from the airport if i hop in an uber or something or a taxi I like to try and ask them, like, what do you like to do? <laughs> what do you think is the best thing to do? <laughs> they always like talking. Yeah, that's the journalist thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, Who's the, the, the taxi cab driver? Well, so what's going on? Yeah. <laughs> Tell me where to go. A recommendation for a book, podcast, or movie to stay entertained on a long journey. Mm, that is so personal. Um, <laughs> hopefully it would be... Um, one that uh, relates to wherever you're going. Like, I, I also recently went to um, Hawaii for some work on on tourism, and um, I found a couple of um, great mysteries of um, World War II Hawaii mysteries, and that really put me in the mood. And it got me um, all the way from Washington to Honolulu, which is a long trip. And finally, where is next on your bucket list? Oh, it's very short. We've rented a house in the Catskills to bring together a family, kids and grandkids. Oh, that's lovely. That's the best, that's the best vacation. <laughs> well, Elizabeth, thank you so much. You've been amazing. I really, really love it. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed this a lot. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope you liked it. You can learn more about us by visiting fulltimetravel.co or following us on Instagram at full underscore time underscore travel. If you have a story you want to share on the trip that changed me, drop us a line. And please be sure to rate, review and follow so we can keep this adventure going. Bye.